0: Hello, full of rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. So busy day today, a bank in New York might be going bust. And it's not just an isolated instance when you actually understand how the monetary system works. This might be the next phase of the banking crisis, which started in March of 2023 and quite honestly has never been fixed. It's not like the BTFP fixed this problem. They might have just punted or papered over it temporarily. Let's get over to this article from the Wall Street Journal. It talks about what happened today, uh, why the stock price was down by like 40%. I think it closed around 35% down just today. Uh, That thumbnail that we use, that's the actual chart of this bank's share price today. (laughs) When I said that just happened, I wasn't joking. That literally just happened. And then what I want to do is I want to go kind of beneath the surface and I want to reveal how these banks are settling. Go back in history, go back in time, and then you're going to understand why the Fed can't solve this problem. It's going to be crystal clear by the end of this video. Okay, so let's go over to the Wall Street Journal. Let me do a screen share. Josh is MIA. So make sure you give Josh crap in the comments here. <laughs> I don't know where the hell he is. I text him. I can't wait forever. Okay. So we go over to the wall street journal and they say regional bank stocks fall after New York community bank corp cuts dividend post loss. Well, that's putting it mildly. That's putting it mildly. So it's, it's not that they cut their dividend and post a loss. It's everything else that went along with it that shows how frail and fragile the banking system is right now, at least with these regional banks. And obviously, there's a lot of systemic risk with the entire monetary system. So just going down through the bullet points here, I've got some highlights. The chief executive, Thomas Kangmi said the bank holding company is adjusting to the demands of, large, of being large bank. Get this, guys. After its purchase of assets and liability from, drumroll please, signature bank. Oh, now I see (laughs) what's happening here. So we had a bank that was going bust. And then we had another bank come in and say, Hey, I'll buy those assets for X on the dollar. And this just goes to show you, it's not really the feds balance sheet that's necessary. It's not that we had too few bank reserves. It's just the willingness wasn't there. The ability to bail out is always there. It's just the willingness. The government could bail them out for heaven's sake. So the banking system isn't doing it. Or if we didn't have the Fed, but back to this. So this New York community bank corps came in and said, yeah, wow, this signature bank, this looks like a bargain. We'll go ahead and buy those assets and buy those liabilities. And now all of a sudden they're saying, oh, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't have done this. Maybe we just bought a big pile of of garbage let's get you some profanity there, but you guys get it, right? and then what's very interesting is this next paragraph with the deal, the company assets under management surpassed a hundred billion. there's a quote subjecting us to enhanced prudential standards, including risk based leverage capital requirements, security standards, and more okay this this is his, his excuse. well, now, oh my gosh, we were this size. And we had to deal with these types of regulations. But now all of a sudden we're this size and we've got to deal with a whole different group of regulations. Let's let's hit the pause button for a moment. Thomas, he's the CEO. You're actually going to tell me, you want me to believe that prior to doing this deal with Signature, you had no idea that the regulatory environment was going to change. That wasn't part of your due diligence process. So no one at your bank came to you and said, hey, just FYI, boss, if you do this deal, we're going to have to deal with different capital requirements. Uh, come on. Who's going to believe this? And, and if that was the case, then shame on you, Thomas. And what are you doing, man? What, what type of due diligence? I've done more due diligence on buying a McDonald's, for heaven's sakes. Or, not that I bought one, but I went through the process. I almost bought one. And I would have done way more due diligence. And it seems like Thomas do, did, if what he is saying is true. Let's keep going. We took device decisive action to build capital, reinforce our balance sheet, strengthen our risk management process, and better align ourselves with relevant bank peers. Okay, well, if doing all of this resulted in going down to the next bullet point, the company recording a $552 million provision for loan losses. Okay, and company swung to fourth quarter loss of 252 million. We read that again. The company swung to a fourth quarter loss of 252 million. So if you knew that doing all these additional things was going to mean that you take your loss provision from 62 million up to 552, and if you knew, or how could that not be obvious that that was gonna lead to a massive loss? And again, if that's the case, if what you're saying is true, this is why you lost money, then why on earth... Did you not see this in due diligence? It's, it's not like this is in the fine print, for heaven's sakes. The real reason, in my opinion, what makes much more sense is that what Thomas found is that when he took on the balance sheet of signature, now all of a sudden, no other banks wanted to do business with him. Therefore, his liquidity completely dried up. It's not about the regulations. Maybe that had a part, but he saw this. He saw these regulations in advance. He said, you know what? This isn't going to be a problem. Because the way uh, I can get liquidity now from all these other banks that I have relationships with in this network, this is a non-issue. Because even though we have this regulation, we can get around it. Doing off-balance sheet stuff, or just like they got around the reserve requirements way back in the day. Those, those, Those reserve requirements, I've been talking about this a lot lately, did nothing. Did absolutely zero. But yet everyone in the financial media thought that there was some huge constraint, just like today they think that all these other regulations are also a big constraint no 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 thomas in my opinion saw what would the all of this uh saw the increase in size to his balance sheet and he was willing to go ahead and do that because he had all of these relationships set up to get around the regulations that he was saying are such a big deal okay but that doesn't Passed the sniff test because that would imply that Thomas didn't know this prior to doing the deal, which I think is utterly ridiculous. What he found out is when he took this additional risk of Signature's balance sheet, when he took their assets and their liabilities, now all of these sources of liquidity that he had because he was part of this network basically told him to pound sand. I said, No, you idiot, we're not going to do this. And then he says, Oh my gosh, now I do have to do X, Y, and Z. And because I've basically been shunned by the entire system and the entire network, because now my individual risk on my balance sheet, the perceived risk is much, much higher. Now I don't have any liquidity. Now I've got to take all these provisions and do all these things that cost the bank a lot of money and could potentially put them in jeopardy of going going bust altogether. Okay. So now that we understand what's going on here with uh, this New York community bank corp, which, uh, you know, they didn't, when I was looking at all of the headlines this morning, they are just talking about this New York bank. They kind of left out the part that this was the bank that assumed the assets and the liability for signature bank that that's FYI mainstream media. That's relevant to the story. <laughs> <laughs> Now what we want to do is go back in time to really understand how the system worked, how it evolved and how it works today. So we can determine the probabilities of this issue with this New York bank being systemic and being applicable to a lot of other banks, even if the Fed were to renew the BTFP, which by the way, according to them, they're not going to do. Remember, what has the Fed been doing recently? other than saying that they're not going to renew the BTFP. They've been trying to do a lot of PR work with what? The discount window. The discount window. You guys know from watching my videos that the reason why these banks don't want to use the discount window is because of stigma. And we sit there as kind of laymen and say, well, okay, I mean, I get it. But why? Why? Why is that stigma such a big deal? You're going to find out. Right now. So, this is something that I pulled up that I've been studying a lot over the last, say, two or three days. This goes back to June of 2011. This is a working paper, working paper number 412, if you want to look it up, from the Bank of England. The history of interbank settlement arrangements, exploring central banks' role in the payment system. Okay, so now let's go over to the first part that I highlighted. We're going to go all the way back to the 1660s, we could go back further than that. But this is a perfect place to start because this is when the blacksmiths, multiple, start trading or start creating their own IOUs, which are effectively what banknotes, cash. Right? Okay. In early banking systems based on notes and/or bills of exchange, banks typically came to accept claims on other banks within their local area. For example. By the 1660s, goldsmiths in London were carrying out banking business, issuing notes against specie deposit, that's gold, issuing notes against gold or maybe silver, and creating money or IOUs by issuing further notes to borrowers. What is this, guys? This is fractional reserve banking. Okay, so what would happen is you would go down to your local blacksmith. And let's say this is a bar of gold, this phone, and you would give... This phone or this bar of gold to the blacksmith, and he would simply give you an, a piece of paper. That says, "I owe you one bar of gold." And then, since it's is totally fungible, he would just put this with the other bars of gold. Doesn't matter what bar of gold you get, as long as it's the same weight and whatnot. And so then you've got this receipt, but that receipt might as well be a bar of gold, as long as people within that community trust. The blacksmith, right? So you can take now this receipt for your bar of gold and you can give that to anyone. You want to go buy a car or whatever it is. Okay, great. I'm going to give you this receipt. And if that person trusts the blacksmith, then fantastic. Okay. Well, what if the blacksmith is a little bit too far away? And they say, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I want to go and I would rather deposit this, uh, this IOU with my local blacksmith and get his IOUs because his IOUs hold a little bit more weight in this local community. I can use them with multiple businesses where this IOU from the town across the way, eh, maybe I can only use it at half the businesses. So what does he do? He takes that IOU and he goes down to the local blacksmith says, Hey, blacksmith, I'm going to give you this IOU from that, from that, from your buddy that's in the other town. I would appreciate it if you just gave me one of your IOUs because they're more universally accepted within this small town. And the guy says, yeah, sure, absolutely. So what he does is he takes the IOU from the person. Now, all of a sudden, that's his asset, okay? So it's his asset, but it's the liability of the other other blacksmith. And then that blacksmith gives the customer his IOUs that are more acceptable within the local community, which is his liability. Because at the end of the day, that can be redeemed for the gold, that he has within his safe, you see? So now what happens is this blacksmith has basically extended credit to that other blacksmith. You see, because this is, what would be the difference between him holding these banknotes or these IOUs? What would be the difference between that and him just giving him a loan for his own banknotes? It's the exact same thing on the balance sheet, you see? So then what happens is we've got a few different options. The blacksmiths can, well, they didn't have phones, but um, they can send a carrier pigeon or, <laughs> <a> po- <laughs> or pony express or <laughs> what are the the uh, the tele what was that thing da- 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 uh telegraph or whatever it was. They send a message to the other uh, blacksmith, and the blacksmith says, "Yeah, you know, you've got some of my I- IOUs, but dude, I've got some of your IOUs." So you've got 110 of my IOUs. I've got 100 of your IOUs. So instead of you sending me 110 or me sending you 100 or whatever it is, why don't we just net things out? And whoever owes the most, then you can go ahead and just send over the 10 IOUs worth of the actual gold. But let's say that now they have a working relationship with one another, and they've been doing this for years on end, going back and forth and back and forth. And every single... Week, let's say it's their custom to go ahead and settle up, and they're always good for it. They're always good for it. Okay, well, if they're always good for it, and this blacksmith now has a very outstanding reputation, as does his counterpart in the small city, small town, or whatever. Now, all of a sudden, well, why are they netting out every week? Why don't they just net out once a month? And then it gets to the point where why even net out once a month? Because there's costs involved in settling the payment, right? It's, 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 it's cumbersome. Now you got to bring that gold over. And how do you do that? There's no Brinks truck. You got to do it in a pony or a horse or something like that. And you got to pay the guy and he has to have security. There's a chance that it gets, they get robbed and all these things. So what ends up happening, you say, okay, well, let's just settle once a year. Now I'm just taking it to an extreme for a thought experiment, right? So now what's happening back and forth is they have all these IOUs going between one another. And they're just keeping track of this on a ledger system. Now, In this process, are there any U.S. dollars, any dollars that are printed by the Treasury? No. Right? Are are there any bank reserves? No. Is there a central bank? No. But what ends up happening is those IOUs are just as, now I'm not saying they are in my mind or your mind, but in the mind of the people that are using them and within the two blacksmiths or between them, because they have this relationship. Those IOUs are effectively as good as gold, because let's just assume for a moment that there's a zero probability that I can't redeem this IOU for gold. Let's just assume that it's a zero probability. Then there is no difference between that IOU and the gold itself. So if there's no difference, then why would you even why would you ever have to settle in gold? You could always just set it settle in that credit system with those ledgers going back and forth, right? Now, let's replace gold with what it is today base money, the Fed's balance sheet. You see? So now let's keep reading. And I just wanted to give you, I kind of wanted to get you caught up here as far as how this system started. But we're going to continue here because I need to go over another paragraph or two to bring things up to where we are today so I can show you how that's applicable to what's happening with this New York Community Bank and how this may also impact and play out throughout the other regional banks moving into 2024 and maybe potentially into the entire system. Okay, let's pull up the next couple paragraphs. Moving on. In time, the formal process put in place by the clearinghouses allowed for the introduction of multilateral netting. Ah, see, what I just told you going back and forth between those two blacksmiths, that was bilateral, just two parties involved. Okay, so I owe you this much, you owe me this much. Let's just wait till the end of the month, net everything out, and then we'll go ahead and settle based on the net. So we don't have all these cumbersome transactions going back and forth every single day. But what if bank A or blacksmith A owes blacksmith B 10 bucks or 10 pieces of gold? Okay, but let's just say for a moment that blacksmith B owes blacksmith C 10 pieces of gold and blacksmith C owes blacksmith a 10 pieces of gold. You see where I'm going with this now, all of a sudden blacksmith a or blacksmith B can say, you know what? Blacksmith, A, don't go ahead and pay me that 10 uh, pieces of gold. Just go ahead and reduce the IOUs that you owe bank C down to zero. And since they owe me, or since they owe you and I owe them, we can just net everything back down to zero because we all owe each other basically 10 gold coins. Now this gets obviously a bit complicated. So what we need to do is we need to bring in a clearinghouse, And this is where we start getting closer to the way it works today to go ahead and net all of these transactions. So just imagine it. I just went through going from two to three. Just imagine if we go from two to 30,000, you see, And each one of these banks has an account with this bank, and that bank has an account with this bank, and that blah, 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 blah. So let's just assume that we have 10,000 banks all within this network. Each bank doesn't have to have an account with the other bank in order to settle. No, as long as that bank has an account with the bank that this bank does business with, then they can still settle this transaction. It's no problem, by the way, without the Fed's balance sheet. And then, What I want you to do is look at this through the lens of how the banks were operating prior to 2008. And we know that they weren't using bank reserves. We know that definitively because the amount of bank reserves in 2007, the electronic reserves, I'm not talking about the actual currency vault cash, but the electronic reserves was right around 8 billion, 8 billion of the B, which considering the fact that there was 7.5 trillion in M2, it might as well have been zero. So why were the banks choosing to settle off the Fed's balance sheet prior to 2008? Because it was cumbersome. It was just like taking gold back and forth. Maybe not that cumbersome, but there would have been a cost. There would have been some sort of disadvantage to settling on the Fed's balance sheet, which prevented the banks from doing so. Because if the banks wanted to settle on the Fed's balance sheet, there would have been a hell of a lot more bank reserves. Because if you go back and look at the notes, the Fed minutes, from the 1990s and they have a summary of the open market operations for the entire year they explicitly say that they created however many bank reserves they thought the banks would need it's a complete opposite of what most people think so understanding that we realize that the banks need or wanted 8 billion worth of reserves in 2007 with 7.5 trillion in m2 which again tells you definitively that there was some reasons some Disadvantage for the bank settling on the Fed's balance sheet. So, why would there not be a disadvantage to that today? Oh, wait, maybe there is. Because if I recall, the Fed is trying to get everyone and their grandmother to settle on the Fed's balance sheet through the discount window. They're trying to destigmatize the discount window. Well, if there isn't such a huge disadvantage to settling on the Fed's balance sheet, Why on earth would you have to dupe these banks into doing so and going so far as to say you might even make it mandatory that banks settle on the discount or through the discount window or actually use the discount window. I don't know if settling is the right word, but use the discount window to reduce or eliminate that stigma altogether. Okay. But that doesn't explain why there's so much stigma. I've hinted at it but we haven't explained it in the amount of detail necessary. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Let's keep going down and reading these articles here, or excuse me, these uh, paragraphs. So they say such multilateral netting had an advantage over bilateral arrangements of further reducing banks' opportunity costs by reducing the amount of settlement assets they needed to hold to meet their obligations. Boom. Exactly. Exactly what we just said. Thus, the banker's clearinghouse in London settled on a multilateral basis from 1841 onwards. So basically, you've just got one central clearinghouse that they set up to say, hey, look, you need to have one ledger that incorporates the ledgers of all these banks within the network. So you can just tell us what we need to do at the end of the, every single month so we don't have all these costs of doing it ourselves, And it's a lot cheaper to pay you to do it Than having me to do it, having to do it uh, in-house or having each one of these banks have to have a separate department or blacksmiths, having to have a separate department to actually manage this. See, now let's keep going. Having become relatively common practice for banks to accept claims on other banks. Remember those IOUs going back and forth that they're using that if the risk is low enough is just as good as gold and they would actually prefer to use then the gold because there's costs associated with settling with the base asset. They also look for ways to reduce the cost of settlement. In the case of Scotland, although the distances involved were relatively small, exchanges in provincial towns proliferated to avoid the need to channel all payments through Edinburgh. Here's, (laughs) I, I love this. I absolutely love this, because this is exactly what we're dealing with today. So Edinburgh back in the day, that would have been the equivalent of the central bank, right? Not, not, not that the Edinburgh uh, clearinghouse or whatever was a part of the government, but we're trying to centralize everything. See what I'm saying, right? Just like the Fed is trying to centralize everything. And what we can see that even back in the 1780s in Scotland, all of these little side networks that were set up within the individual towns or provinces would do everything that they could not to have to settle through this central location that they didn't really have a trust relationship with because it was more cumbersome. And they were trying to reduce the costs. And why pay this additional cost when I know Steve in the other town? I know Steve. I've known him for 25 years. I I, I know he's good for it. So why do I need to go through Edinburgh? That's going to take more time. It's going to take more money. So today, as an example, why would the bank say, I'm going to settle with the Fed? or on the Fed's balance sheet. Obviously, there's a disadvantage to doing that, or they would have been doing it prior to 2008. It's the exact same thing playing out today as in the 1780s. And as we go through this, you start to realize why this New York Community Bank is, pardon my French, up shit creek without a paddle, and why this is such a huge, huge problem for the Federal Reserve. And this explains why they're trying to get everybody To use the discount window. Let's keep going here. The banks set up such exchanges in the late 1780s, 90s, and by 1826, there were weekly and later daily exchanges in most Scottish towns where two or more of the banks were represented in order to reduce the number of drafts on Edinburgh issued in connection with the local exchanges from 1876. Provincial exchange vouchers were used to claim, carry claims forward from one business day to the next. So now they're not even trading IOUs. They're just trading vouchers for the IOUs. Vouchers, and this is another reason why, look, would it be great if we could go to a Bitcoin standard or a gold standard or anything? Yeah, I think there's some serious advantages to that. Well, I mean, we would avoid all these uh, settlement issues for sure with Bitcoin. But at the end of the day... Uh, Look, human beings are human beings here. And and we're just, there's going to be fractional reserve banking. It just, it's, it, it, you, you don't have to like it. It just, it is what it is. You, you got to accept the probabilities. But getting back to this, vouchers were only forwarded uh, to Edinburgh for settlement at the end of each week or during the week of the balance if it exceeded 100 pounds. Now, one thing that I might not have... Yeah, I forgot to go over this. So we're going back to the first paragraph because I I didn't go over something that was extremely important. At least if I did, uh, it'll be redundant and I apologize. But it's it's worth repeating again because it's that important. So like we're saying, they accepted each other's notes on the bilateral basis. This is prior to going to that that system where there's multiple banks within the network. Uh, The bankers understood the credit risk involved. Listen to this, guys. The more reputable was a banker, the longer other banks were willing to hold his notes. So let's just assume for a moment that JP Morgan would have assumed the balance sheet of signature. Do you think they'd be having the same problems that New York Community Bank is? No. And do you think that's an issue of regulatory stuff? No. It's simply because every single bank knows that the probability of JP Morgan going bust is effectively zero. So they're still in the network. They can still settle, they can get credit, liquidity. It doesn't matter. It it, it doesn't matter. But what this New York community bank didn't realize is that they have good standings. They were reputable. I might be adding a syllable there. They were reputable. (laughs) And now when they take on signatures, balance sheet, all of a sudden, they're no longer reputable. They don't have the same clout. And now all of a sudden, all the liquidity dries up. Not because it's not available or there's not enough bank reserves or something that the Fed is doing. No, it's because all the other banks see them and say, yeah, uh, no, I don't want to do business with you anymore because I don't trust your balance sheet no matter what you're telling me. All right, now let's go over to real quick whiteboard. So what I want to do just so it's, we're all on the same page is I want to go through one of these multi, was it multilateral or whatever um, ways of settling to where there's no cash here. There's no federally issued dollars or currency units. There's no central bank. There's no, none of this stuff, right? And let's remember that one blacksmith accepting the paper IOUs from another blacksmith on the balance sheet is no different Then today, one, a a bank sending another bank commercial deposit liabilities. And in order to settle, they do so with the receiving bank just extending a credit to the sending bank, right? Because all that credit is, is a loan, which is basically an IOU, right? It's all the same. It's the exact same. The, The banking system today is identical to what it was in the 1600s, literally. The only thing that's different is today we have computers. That's it, all right? So anyway, let's get back to this here. We start off, we've got three banks. We'll just call this one in the upper left, Bank A. We'll call this Bank B on the right. And then in the middle, lower, we'll call this Bank C. Now, when we start, Bank C has, let's just say, gold as an asset on their balance sheet. And then over here, liabilities is equity, okay? And let's say that they have as an asset, a loan that they made to bank B. But that loan is just depositing, let's say $1,000 into bank B's account. So this D is deposit. And if you hopefully you guys can see this, these are a uh, black color. This line is blue and this line is red. These lines are green. So the reason I colored it that way is so you would know that this blue deposit liability for bank C is a deposit asset for bank B. But this loan liability, since you see the blue here, it matches up with this blue one. It's an asset of bank C, but it's a liability of bank B, right? And the same thing with these green boxes. It's, it's, again, identical to three blacksmiths holding each other's IOUs. There's no difference whatsoever. Okay, so now let's say that bank C creates a loan... And by doing so, a mortgage or something like that. And by doing so, they also create a deposit liability. But let's just say that this customer wants to transfer this deposit from bank C over to bank A. All right. But we don't have any bank reserve to settle. We, we don't have any green piece of paper. We don't have any of this stuff. So w- what do we do? Right? Because you're sending a deposit liability over to this bank. Well, You have to do something or else they're going to have negative equity. But remember, Bank A owes Bank B, let's say a thousand bucks, and Bank B owes Bank C a thousand bucks. So let's just say it's it's a mortgage for a thousand dollars, right? That they just created. Well, now Bank C owes Bank A a thousand dollars as well. So what they can do is they can just go ahead and transfer this deposit liability, and they can cancel out all the other IOUs between the two banks, and now all of a sudden they've settled. Everything nets out. So at the end of the transaction, you've got that deposit liability that went up to bank A from bank C, but that takes the place of the loan liability that they had to bank B, right? And then bank B had a liability to bank C and that gets deleted and that is replaced by this loan that was created For the mortgage to begin with, so I know that gets a little confusing here. But the bottom line is, they all owed each other ten bucks or a thousand bucks, and what they did is they say, "Okay, well we all owe each other a thousand bucks. Let's just net it out and say we don't owe each other anything." That's exactly how the banking system works today, and that's how they, or that's one of the many ways that they can settle, just like they did back in the sixteen hundreds, with no central bank, with no Fed, with no bank reserves with no green pieces of paper, nada. It's just settling IOUs on a ledger between three blacksmiths. Now, let's think this through. The reason this works to begin with, the reason why this blacksmith or bank was willing to extend credit to this bank and this bank was willing to extend credit to that bank is because they all trust each other. They're all in the network. But what happens if bank A buys the assets and liability from Signature Bank? (laughs) You see what happens? Now all of a sudden, they're screwed because Bank A and Bank B look at Bank C and say, "Yeah, no, you're not part of the club anymore." So then, the only option is for them to go to the discount window, as an example. And but if they go to the discount window, now they're really not part of the club because if Bank A and Bank B thought they were screwed to begin with, now they really think they're screwed. You say, "Well, George, can't they just keep going back and forth and back and forth to the Fed?" to stay in business, oh, maybe to stay in business on some sort of lifeline, like someone that's uh, you know on, on life support after a car accident or something like that. But it doesn't mean that they're going to be functional. And if they could be just as functional, living on life support, then why weren't they doing that prior to 2008? See, the answer is they would have been. Now, do you understand why? Back in March of 2023, even though the Fed set up the BTFP, and even though now they've got the discount window, do you see how that really, at the end of the day, doesn't solve the problem? Because the problem that we have here is not a lack of liquidity. It's not a, 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 a that the Fed just needs to, that doesn't they don't have enough tools. It's not that there's just not enough bank reserves. Is it the trust in the system is decreasing? The trust in the system is decreasing. And regardless of what the Fed does, that means liquidity is drying up. Now, the Fed might be able to postpone it a little bit, but it doesn't matter. The the end game is still the exact same. Just like it was in the 1660s, we see it playing out right in front of our own eyes in 2024. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your evening. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market, capitalism. I want to encourage all of you to go check out rebelcapitalslive.com. That is the conference that I've got coming up May 31st in Orlando. got some incredible speakers here, guys. Mike Green, Kenny, Jeff Snyder, McIntosh, Hartman, Mark Moss, Joseph Wang's going to be there. Barnes going to be talking about liberty. We've got Rich Cooper there talking about red pill stuff. We'll have some more speakers as we get closer to the events. So you guys got to go. Check it out. Buy your tickets ASAP because as we get closer to the event, the tickets go up in price. And I will look forward to seeing all of you guys on the next video and in Orlando, May 31st.